Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Did you kill Meredith? No. I did not kill Meredith. If you noticed in this interview with Amanda Knox, she appeared to laugh when asked if she murdered her former roommate, Meredith Kircher. If you actually watch the video, you'll see her smile. It's not the typical behavior of someone who's experienced a tragedy such as this. And that's exactly what triggered one of the most well-known murder investigations in recent history. The lead prosecutor in Italy, where the murder took place, told the makers of the documentary Suspect Her the same thing. What he's noting here is that Amanda Knox and her boyfriend were behaving at the scene with, quote, an affection inappropriate for the moment. Throughout the investigation, observers made similar observations about Amanda Knox. Where everyone else was upset, Amanda seemed to have either no emotion or an inappropriate emotion. One of the friends said to Andrew, I hope Meredith didn't suffer badly. And Anne said, of course she fucking suffered. She had a throat fucking cut. This police officer in this disclosure said Amanda and Raffaella were kissing each other. She was performing cartwheels and doing stretching exercises. Of course she did it. She's mad. She's complete and utter loon. I mean, who behaves like that? Based on this suspicious behavior, the authorities relentlessly investigated Amanda and her boyfriend. And ultimately, they were sentenced to 26 and 25 years in prison, respectively, for the murder of Meredith Kircher. After several years in prison, they were acquitted and released. And a burglar named Rudy Guede, whose bloody fingerprint was found at the crime scene, was sentenced for the murder. So what happens if someone who's close to a crime presents like they're guilty, but isn't. This question has been running through my head often as we look deeper into Susan Park, the mother of Elaine Park. She also presents suspiciously. She appears to have a little remorse. Her statements are inconsistent at the very least. And her behavior is odd, as if she has a hidden agenda. But as in the case of Amanda Knox, suspicious behavior does not equal guilt. And there's still no proof of what exactly happened to Elaine. Yet every time we speak with Susan, our suspicions grow. You're going to hear about a lot more suspicious behavior. But let's take, for now, one example. Susan's whereabouts between the time Elaine went to her ex-boyfriend's house on Friday night, January 27th, and left his house just before dawn the next morning, never to be seen again. This is Anne-Marie asking her about it. If you weren't home, she could have gone home. You would have never known. I was at Jeff's. So on Thursday, 3.41, on the 26th, I was with Jeff. I get a phone call. 
my mom, mom, my car battery died. So Jeff and I, we go to her to rescue her. We found out the gas was out too. So because that incident, Friday night, Saturday night, middle of the night, I came home. I even told Jeff, I said, you know, I'm worried because she's having car problem. I need to go home. I think I did that consecutively, maybe like 2.30 or 2 o'clock or something, or 3 o'clock sometimes. And as I remember, there was no trace of Elaine. There's no trace. Can I ask a quick question about that? If she had car troubles, why would it be better if you were at home? Because if you were with Jeff, he could help you. I don't know. I was just kind of like thinking, um, just I had to be home. I was worried about her. But she would call your cell phone, correct? Yeah. So it's interesting to me that you would want to be home. I just wanted to be home yeah. for her if in case she needs me or I, just worried. Yeah. Just worried. You know, I just couldn't relax. So I just would just come home and just, I don't so know. you wanted to be by yourself, basically. Yeah, I just wanted to be home that with, uh, I don't know. Like, if you put it that way, you know? Yeah. I don't have an answer. Episode 9, Chapter 18, Exhibit A. All right. Hey, guys. Jane, you want to come sit over here? We have Neil's on speaker. Okay. I got it. Hi, Neil. Hey, Neil. After the cadaver dog search, the Glendale Police Department reached out to Mike and I to set up a meeting with the team. Since then, we've been preparing to share everything we know and have gathered with the detectives investigating Elaine's disappearance. None of us have met with the police before about anything like this, so we work with Jaden and with several contacts in the FBI. With their help and additional research, we prepare a PowerPoint presentation composed only of facts, backed by evidence such as audio, video, screenshots, and photographs. We feel that the police will be more likely to listen to facts than theories. The theories will leave to them. We're here to talk about uh you know, obviously the case. So we're gonna move kind of away from Divine. Those leads were run down. We don't feel like there was any furtherance toward that series of leads. We were looking at exploring wider other suspects in the case when something really sort of triggered a change in the sentiment. And we started to look more closely at both the current state of things and we started looking more at Susan, Elaine's mom. One of the reasons the focus of the investigation has shifted is because the clock is ticking. If there's any physical evidence in Elaine's room, this needs to be collected before it's rented out. And as uncomfortable as it is to consider Susan through this lens, her behavior merits further investigation. 
We have compelling information about her background, about lies and contradictions that she's told, lots of suspicious activity, and finally, and most importantly, physical evidence. And then I would just bullet point it down. So that's, that's exhibit A. Then B, we go on to lies and contradictions. The most compelling contradiction that we find is the most important place where you shouldn't have a contradiction, which is her alibi. And then we talk about these were alibis that she presented, and this is how many times she changed it. We have recordings of her saying this. And then next, let's talk about her reasons for deleting Elaine's text messages. Another compelling point is we found that the doorknob to Elaine's bedroom was fractured in a way that's consistent with somebody kicking the door down from the outside. When confronted, we have her on tape about how it is Elaine slamming the door shut. I mean, the dogs are compelling on their, on their own, but what really doubles that down is the alibi one and the doorknob. To me, you mean the cracked doorknob? High, highly significant, the doorknob. Now, that's like a double because the doorknob alone looks really bad, but when you ask Susan about it, it looks really bad. Then I'd say moving on to suspicious activity, the other category we're going to outline. Anne Marie then lists the items cleaning Elaine's room in the days after her disappearance, cleaning and putting away the items found in Elaine's car. Disabling Elaine's phone by trying the password F-U-C-K for the last attempt. Not telling the neighbors Elaine is missing, and so on. Um, that type of thing. So right I do agree. Yeah. And it all leads to what we just said. Elaine's not coming back. Neil, we also just realized that Elaine's Facebook, uh, it was wiped. Clean. What? Yeah when it comes to the logging information. So every time you log in from different location or it just tracks your loggings. What Ingrid's referring to is Elaine's Facebook login history, which shows the devices that log into her account, as well as the location, date, and time of the login. We've been going through the accounts and data Susan gave us. And on March 1st, on Susan's phone, there's a reminder that states, FB login history. But when the team checked Elaine's login history, they saw that there were no login history items for Elaine prior to this date. The first login that's recorded is from March 3rd, a month after Elaine's disappearance, and two days after the calendar entry. So this means that either Elaine's login history was deleted prior to that date, or for some reason, and I'm not even sure that this is possible, her login history was turned on after that date. And so we checked uh, everybody's Facebook here, and like, I, I never log into Facebook really, except for just looking at stuff like this, and it's got back like two years or more of my logins from all different devices, even after I've changed my password. So there's really no way to get rid of that other than to go in and actually like hit a button that's next to it that says, delete this entry. Got it. And we do know that Elaine's been on Facebook? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Holy shit, man. Uh, yeah. I mean, we don't know that it was her. What Jaden's referring to here is that even if the Facebook data was deleted, other people may have been in the account investigating besides Susan. So it could have been someone else that did it. 
The team then covers many other items they found that seem suspicious or contradictory, all of which we want to present to the police. With everything else we've investigated up to this point, we've been able to get some resolution. But with this angle, we keep getting more questions than answers, questions that may be out of our experience level to answer. I'm going to have to take a break right now to, um, to take care of some baby business, so I'm going to turn over the note-taking responsibility to Ingrid and to Jaden. No, no problem. I think we're keeping simultaneous notes. So. Yeah, I do too. The night before our meeting with the police, I call Mike and Anne-Marie to express my discomfort about bringing this information to the authorities. I can't imagine the pain a parent must feel when their child goes missing. But at the same time, my empathy ultimately lies with Elaine. And I know I'd want someone to turn over every stone to find me if I went missing. Just even presenting this to the police, it's so uncomfortable. We're not trying to look at Susan. I don't, I, I think that like we, we've always said, you know, people grieve in ways that are different. Um, a person's going to grieve differently from the way that we would grieve. And a mother can mother in different ways. And sometimes unmothering is a way of mothering. And we've always been open-minded about what her actions could possibly mean. It's just that we started this investigation looking at everybody, um, and we followed the data to, you know, down every trail. We started at looking at rappers and and uh, at the compares, and we followed everything we, she said. We sent a, an investigator to track Lolo. We followed everything she said, and we followed everything we found, and it led to logical conclusions that were data backed, and we were able to to get closure on a lot of loose threads. The only loose thread is Susan, which we desperately want to clear. We want to see an explanation for why she's been behaving so strangely. But every time we keep looking to get the answers that we would like to see, we actually see dark things that confirm suspicions that we want to erase. And we can't help it. That's just what we find. And when you start putting together every piece of information that she has, it doesn't paint a picture of clean innocence. It all kind of just adds up in this tangled, awful tapestry that like we all wish we could unsee. We have to follow every thread until there's no more thread to follow. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. 
Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Chapter 19. Go Time. On the day of the police meeting, the Malibu team met near Mike's house, and we all drove to the Glendale police station together. Make a U-turn on Pacific Coast Highway. All right, so Waze is just, uh, yeah, you turn here, obviously, to then take the 101. Take the 101 to As we drove, we passed the spot on the Pacific Coast Highway where Lane's car was found. It's odd that we're just driving past, and I'm recording, of course. It's odd that we're driving past the exact point where Lane disappeared. But here it almost seems as if every time we're passing this location, we're talking about Elaine and trying to figure out what happened to her. Hopefully, this will be the break in the case that her friends and loved ones have been hoping for. Oh, gosh. All right. Okay. It's happening. We nervously pulled up outside the station. Hello, this is Glendale Police Department. We parked, okay. walked inside, and were escorted upstairs. Our nerves weren't settled any when the officers asked to speak with each of us individually and then as a group. In the end, we met with the detectives for a total of three hours. During that group meeting, they listened as we ran through the different scenarios we've mentioned and what we knew. We talked about the divine accusations, and they seemed to feel they looked into and cleared him. We spoke about Lolo, and they said they'd also follow up and interview him. And then we turned to Susan. As with the other possibilities, we ran down our biggest concerns. In this case, there were a number of contradictions and coincidences, much of it new information we discovered while preparing for the meeting. We put them together on a timeline of the period before, during, and after Elaine's disappearance. And we explained that there could be completely innocent reasons for any of these items. Here's a condensed version of that timeline. May 2016, eight months before Elaine's disappearance. Elaine is involved in an auto accident as a passenger in her friend Sadie's car. Outside of Elaine cutting her hand while trying to help occupants get out of another vehicle, neither Elaine nor Sadie appear to have been injured in any way. Shortly afterward, Elaine's mother helps her file an insurance claim, which Elaine refers to via text to her mother as, quote, fraud. So you guys weren't really hurt? No. 
I mean, her hands were like bleeding right. and I guess she, she was more sore after, but during it, we weren't hurt at all. But right. I think it was more of an insurance thing for Elaine and her mom. June, 2016, seven months before Elaine's disappearance. Elaine and her mother begin fighting over the money. Elaine texts her mom that once the insurance check arrives, quote, it either better be linked directly to my checking account, or if it's a physical check, directly in my hands, the full amount. I'm going to call the office and make sure you're not pulling any snake shit either. July 2016, six months before Elaine's disappearance. Elaine and her mother get in a fight because Susan is pushing her to go to a chiropractor appointment to support their insurance claim. The fight culminates in multiple angry texts from Susan to Elaine, eight of which contain the word die in capital letters, followed by 13 exclamation points. December 2016, one month before Elaine's disappearance. Susan has recently lost her job as an assistant. Elaine, who is spending most of the school semester sleeping at her friend Daisy's apartment, begins staying at home again. Elaine is also no longer working. She and Susan send each other approximately 68 texts arguing about money, usually amounts between $2 and $30. Meanwhile, Elaine's father ends the unofficial child support payments that he was giving to Susan. January 4th, 2017, three weeks before Elaine's disappearance. The attorney representing Elaine in the insurance claim sends the insurance company a letter demanding, as the letter puts it, a settlement of $18,000. On or around this same day, Susan applies for a passport renewal. Her last passport appears to have expired in 2009, eight years earlier. There could be any number of innocent reasons for this, and she may have been trying to get a new passport for a while. But the timing is odd, but it's something we'd like to look into further January 23rd, 2017, five days before Elaine's disappearance. After a counteroffer of $4,000 from the insurance company, a new letter from the attorneys representing Elaine's claim demands a $15,000 settlement. This same day, Susan sends Elaine the following text, fucking messy bitch. It's unclear what exactly led to this text, but it's part of a consistent pattern of toxic, angry messages between mother and daughter. January 27th, 2017, the day before Elaine's disappearance. Elaine borrows $20 from her mom, telling her she'll pay her back at 6 p.m. after she gets money from her father later that day. Unfortunately, from this date forward, Elaine's phone did not back up to iCloud, and the phone was disabled after too many passcode attempts so we don't have any further data on communication with her. If Susan had possession of the phone, I advised her not to enter any passwords. My instruction uh, as, a, as the investigator, uh, she entered uh, multiple passwords. And at that point, once she did that, then you know I was a little more strenuous in saying, okay, we're gonna take possession of the phone. So we did that. However, shortly after that, she contacted me saying that she had information of what the password was or, or, or may have or may be. I tried to get her to not 
push us forward on that, uh, but she insisted, and so we consulted with our attorney, and ultimately ended up, you know, entering that password, and that password that we entered at, you know, at her direction uh, was ultimately the tenth incorrect password, and the phone was placed into recovery mode. Around 8:10 p.m. on the night before her disappearance. Elaine arrives at Divine's house. At 9.54 p.m., Susan goes online to check the State Department website's passport application page. Meanwhile, at Divine's house around this time, Elaine and Divine go to a late-night movie. January 28, 2017. The day of Elaine's disappearance. At 12.43 a.m., Divine and Elaine return home from the movie theater. Susan initially tells us that she's at her boyfriend Jeff's house, then says she can't remember where she was that night, then finally determines that she left Jeff's house and returned home around 3 a.m. because she was worried about Elaine. Can I ask a quick question about that? If she had car troubles, why would it be better if you were at home? Because if you were with Jeff, he could help you. I don't know. I was just kind of like thinking, um, just I had to be home. I was worried about her. But she would call your cell phone, correct? Yeah. At 6.04 a.m., security cameras show Elaine leaving Divine's house. Her car exits the gated community at 6.06 a.m. And this is the last time she's seen. That night, Susan did something that surprised us, something we were recently able to confirm on her phone bill and are sharing for the first time. At 11.58 p.m., on the same day her daughter disappears, Susan calls the Crescenta Valley Sheriff's Station where she lives to ask about reporting Elaine missing. When was the first time you contacted, just called any police? I contacted, the first call I made was on Saturday. Sunday morning, I could check my phone record, but I think, and Jeff knows all of them was right, right. I think it was on Sunday, or either Saturday evening. There are two concerns here. The first is, she made this call before contacting any of Elaine's friends, local hospitals, or even the last person she knows for a fact that Elaine saw that day, her father. And secondly, she stated that Elaine would often disappear for days at a time. She leaves, she goes, she leaves two, three days, comes whenever she wished to. Have you she ever never tells me where she goes. Have you ever called the police before because you were worried about her? Being no, missing? that was the first time. January 30th, two days after Elaine's disappearance. At 9.40 a.m., Susan makes what is apparently the only contact with someone Elaine knows to ask about her daughter's whereabouts. She messages Elaine's friend Sadie on Facebook, saying that she's worried about Elaine, and notes that Elaine took all of her makeup and her traveling blue duffel bag and may be staying with her boyfriend. At 10.30 a.m., just one hour later, Susan calls the attorney representing the accident claim. At 11.48 a.m., Susan calls the La Crescenta Valley Sheriff's Station again, then calls the Glendale Police Department to file a missing persons report. 
At 3.10 p.m., she again calls the attorney representing the accident claim. At 4.25 p.m., an officer comes to her home to take a missing persons report. It states that the last text message from Elaine was at 9.05 p.m. the night before her disappearance. These messages, and all of Susan's messages with Elaine, have since been deleted from Susan's iPhone. You may recall that Susan gave two different stories for deleting them. Oh, do you have the text that you sent her? I only have it in the uh, phone record, Verizon record. Oh, you don't have it on your phone? No, I don't have it on my phone. I have a problem with whenever I take care of something, huh? I want to, I delete oh, it. When it was pointed out that she said Elaine hadn't responded to her texts, she changed the story to the following. I used to have Samsung. Oh. You lock the message that you want to follow up, you lock it so it doesn't delete. So that's how I accidentally deleted Elaine's uh, yeah. text. After taking the report, the officer then calls Elaine's father, Ray. And this is how he first hears that Elaine had disappeared. You may recall that Elaine told Susan she was going to see her dad to get money the evening before she disappeared. So again, it seems odd that Susan apparently didn't speak with him before contacting the police. When you found out about what had happened, uh, you know, where were you and how did you find out? The uh, Glendale police officer just called me Monday afternoon and he asked me, when was the last time you seen Elaine? February 2nd, five days after Elaine's disappearance. Susan and Jeff drive to Calabasas to speak with the comparers. They also go to the Malibu Lost Hills Sheriff Station and request that the officers there ping Elaine's phone. At 1.16 p.m., around the same time, Susan makes another call to the attorney representing the accident claim. Around 2.30 p.m., police retrieve the last ping from Elaine's phone hitting a cell tower at Corral Canyon Road in Malibu five days earlier. Later that day, officers locate Elaine's car on the Pacific Coast Highway with all four doors unlocked, the key in the ignition with the electrical turned on, and with Elaine's phone, computer, remaining money from her father, and her baby blue duffel bag, all in the vehicle. February 15th, 18 days after Elaine's disappearance. Susan's new passport is issued. This may be a coincidence. Perhaps she did have travel plans we're unaware of, but we've been unable to find any record of them. We plan to ask Susan about all of this, but first, in case any of it is of any significance, we want the police to speak with her first. March 21st, seven weeks after Elaine's disappearance. Elaine's name is signed on a release of all bodily injury claims so the insurance settlements can be released. The final amount is $5,000, split evenly between the attorney, the medical provider, and Elaine. March 31st, two months after Elaine's disappearance. On Susan's phone calendar at 9 a.m., she notes, hide it. At 10.30 a.m., members of the Malibu team visit to see Elaine's room for the first time. On her calendar at 1 p.m., after they leave, Susan notes, put back hide items, shed. Of course, this could be something unrelated to Elaine and a personal matter, 
but it at least merits looking into further. May 6th, three months after Lane's disappearance. A cadaver dog search is completed of Susan's home. There is an alert in Elaine's bedroom, as well as interest in Elaine's bedroom, her closet, a hallway closet with cleaning supplies, and the outdoor storage shed. During the weeks between meeting Susan and the cadaver dog search, we realized that many of the key items we're looking for have been deleted, removed, cleaned, or otherwise made inaccessible shortly after Elaine's disappearance. Elaine's bedroom has been cleaned, painted, and put up for rent, with some of the furniture given away or otherwise disposed of. Elaine's car has been leased, and all the items in it have been washed and put away, including the contents of her bags. It's worth noting here that the police had already processed the vehicle. Elaine's Facebook login history has been apparently deleted. All of Susan's texts with Elaine have also been deleted, and Elaine's iPhone has been disabled. After presenting all of this to the Glendale police officers, we add in the history of conflict between Susan and Elaine, as well as other details that are not suited to be shared publicly just yet. We stressed again that we're not saying this information means Susan knows what happened to Elaine. Certainly far from that. There could be innocent explanations for all of these. What we are saying is that just as divine merits further investigation than what appears to have been done. So too does Susan. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. As the meeting concluded... The detectives said they'd need to gather any relevant information using their own methods in a manner that can hold up in court. 
They said they can't just get on the stand and say, well, Mike told me this. The detectives concluded the interview by telling us, it's going to take us a little time to catch up, but once we catch up, then it's go time. So let's just discuss everything in general. So I'm glad that we showed through the PowerPoint. I'm, I'm glad, glad that, that it I'm glad we just went through the whole thing. Yeah, yep. They can see how it's organized. They like it as like the cliff notes. I feel, I feel like exactly what I expected. They're solid. I mean, better than I expected, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. They're solid, they're into it, they're committed. Some of the stuff, were, a few things are showing, I can't remember what they were, were really blowing their minds. It seems like, what, I think what they're gonna start doing is bring in for multiple interviews. But you know what though? I, I feel good about letting the police do their shit now. I do too. This was it, we thought as we drove home. We could return to our normal lives and justice would be served. However, that would prove not to be the case. Chapter 20, Headquarters. All right. All right, cool. Let's, let's just make it separate. Let's yeah, just we can get everything separate. We can get everything separate. Oh, hey, hey. Hi. How are you? We're back at Susan's house. And this is incredibly awkward, given what's recently occurred. However, after learning that it may take a while to obtain warrants, we've realized that if someone's going to rent Elaine's room, it should be someone who isn't going to disturb anything else there. And that someone is us. So, um, you know, just painted and everything. I put her clothes back, her shoes. Okay. Um, and all her belongings are still in my area, in my room. Oh, okay. And in Dustin's room. And Dustin says that, um, Dustin said that, uh, his work is so, like, the timing is so weird that he might have to start sleeping here. Okay. So I'm going to have to make that room Dustin's room. That's cool. Yeah. We'll wait till the cat's coming back here. <laughs> so yeah. Funny. It's just that so many people are allergic. And, and like, <laughs> so I'm just, sorry. I just couldn't. Hey, but let's see. I, tell Dustin, I told Dustin that if the cat always has a place in my home. Oh, yeah. but they'll so, come oh, here. Yeah. They'll come here. It's okay. So, so do you want me to um, put this desk over there? Oh, yeah, let's take, let's take a look. We can totally yeah, we can use that. We would totally use that. Yeah. And any furniture that we need, um, part of our job today is to see what we need. And we brought a lot of supplies. Yeah, for us oh, yeah, so, uh, But we, yeah, we have a lot of supplies, and then we'll see whatever furniture we need. Yeah, so, so the, uh, yes, yeah, a second desk wouldn't hurt, though, yeah. right? Um, yeah, if you want, you could even maybe bring Elaine's stuff back in here. Yeah, yeah, we'll stuff here. Everything here. Yeah. Everything yeah, yeah, Jaden's yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, this is going to be such a good headquarters yeah, for all of us. I, I've been using that. You know what, honestly, I'll say it does feel good to have this room used yeah. for, like... Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Because yeah, okay. I've been in my room in dark, and, you know... Yeah. I've been doing all that, and I'm like, wow, this is good. Oh, so, on the, pra on the practical side, uh, I just uh, printed a lease out online, so we can bring that by. We just figured we'd do six months. Uh, and then go month to month. Oh my gosh. So we want to do it officially. You know what? One little thing helps. I, I, I don't want to deny. I'm not the type to accept their reach out monetary stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm, this is my first time ever to reaching out monetarily. I've, I've, it's not me. 
Ingrid and I return later with Elise. The plan is to use the room as a headquarters for all of our efforts to find Elaine. It seems like a more appropriate use of Elaine's space than having a stranger live there. So whether or not anything happened here, and whether or not Susan knows more than she's letting on, this feels like the right thing to do. Here you go. So there's Alex. La Crescenta. What's this? 91214. 214. Two, one, four. Four. Honor is Susan. Oh, you gotta change it. We said first of the month out of five. The rent's due on the 15th of each month. And now, our job is to wait, to preserve Elaine's room, and hope the police take some sort of action to find out if anything happened here. Thank you for listening. Next week, on Thursday, we'll be releasing a special bonus episode. Then we will return for the final episodes. This is still an active investigation, and please keep in mind that the police have not named any suspects, and everyone mentioned should be presumed innocent. We are sharing this step-by-step documentary of our experiences while searching for Elaine Park with you, in hopes that this podcast leads to justice for Elaine. We urge you not to form any conclusions about anyone or anything mentioned until you've heard the whole series as it unfolds in its entirety. We are reading and looking into every tip that arrives. So if you have any information regarding Elaine Park, her disappearance, or any of the parties that have been mentioned over the course of this series, you can email us anonymously at livedila at tenderfoot.tv or call us anonymously at 213-204. 2073. When possible, I've posted images and videos that may help give you a visual picture of some of the information collected in each episode. You can find these at our social media accounts at LiveDieLAPod. To Live and Die in LA is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Neil Strauss in association with Cadence 13. Executive producers are myself, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Produced and edited by Tristan Bankston. Associate producer, Alex Vespasted. And additional editing by Mariah Winter. Mixed and mastered by Cooper Skinner and Devin Johnson. Original music and score by Makeup and Vanity Set. With additional musical services by Tristan Bankston. The theme song is Love and War by Flurry. Cover design by Trevor Eiler. With Tristan Bankston as the voice of Ray. And special thanks to Chris Corcoran and the team at Cadence 13, Oren Siegel, Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, the Nord Group, Station 16, and Beck Media and Marketing. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. 